Scarlet stood before the court, an attorney in a suit, swore an oath to tell the truth. Scarlet stood. Welcome back to For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and wanted to start off by thanking you all for the great feedback over the past couple of weeks. I really appreciate it, and. It's good to hear from you all. This week, you're going to love it. I think we have Jerry Goldstein, the man to see in San Antonio. I mean, this dude has been doing it a long time, and he still has the same energy and enthusiasm as he did when he started. Speaking of when he started, he had a case way back in 1974.、Um, it was the Deep Throat case. A guy named Richard Dexter, the film projectionist for. That Deep Throat movie was arrested three nights in a row, and you're going to hear about a prosecutor named Ted Butler who was arguing that this film was morbid and shameful and obscene, and trying to get Dexter put in jail, and how Goldstein represented him, calling experts and psychiatrists, psychologists, sex therapists, who testified that this movie was just entertainment, humorous, educational.、Um, It's a crazy, crazy trial, crazy defense, and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. I think you're going to enjoy hearing from my good friend Jerry Goldstein in For the Defense next. Well, welcome to the show. I'm really excited that we have the great Jerry Goldstein joining us today. Jerry is the man to see in San Antonio, but he's a close friend and a wonderful. Lawyer, so welcome, Jerry, to for the defense. Thank you, David, for those kind lies.、Uh, much appreciated. <laughs> well, you know, I want to turn back to a case that you handled back in the early seventies.、Um, everybody knows the case as the Deep Throat case. Your client's name was Rich Richard Dexter.、Um, yeah. Where Where were you in your career when you got this case? You know, what What was the story? I was just cutting my teeth.、Uh, A,、uh, I had graduated from law school in '68.、Uh, the film Deep Throat with uh, uh, Linda Lovelace and Harry Reams had come out in '72, and by '73, a youngster by the name. Of, by the way, the, what was interesting is the a、uh, a lawyer in San Antonio who was originally sent the case. The case came from the a Memphis. Lawyer who was the city attorney in Memphis, and he sent it to a very well-known lawyer in San Antonio, who had, after he got the case, he was nominated for the federal bench, and he didn't want it.、Uh, he didn't want anything to do with it, so he gave it to me. I, I didn't know any better, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, it involved a. Go, go ahead. No, it, I, I was going to ask you what it what it involved, and and you know,、um, so you're early in your career, you you get this call. I'm、um, a baby a, lawyer, right? Yeah, and I and I get a call, and he said, uh, uh, "This kid, Richard Dexter, who had gone to my high school,、uh, younger than me,、uh, was a dropout,、uh, and he was he, he remembers this story a little differently than the court records, and I remember it. But in essence,、uh, he was looking for a job, and he went to the Texas Employment Commission." And they asked him what skills he had, and he really didn't have any. But he did tell them that he had run a 16 millimeter projector when he was in the military and in high school. And they used to show those syphilis films to the young students and airmen、uh, to convince them to engage in protected sex. 
for a much different reason uh, than we think about that today. Uh, and uh, uh, they got him a job as a projectionist at the Fiesta Theater in downtown San Antonio in 1973. And for the next three nights, he was arrested for showing the film Deep Throat. So, so he's just the projectionist, the low-level projectionist, and that's who they decide to arrest? In, in those days, they never messed with the actual owners of the theater or the, the producers of the film. Uh, they went after the projectionist. And uh, uh, it, was an, uh, a, it was an interesting case uh, for a lot of different reasons. And if you remember, Deep Throat was the first X-rated film that claimed it had a plot. I mean, you probably never saw it, but the opening scene is uh, Linda Lovelace sitting in the sink and she looks, she's smoking a cigarette and she looks down and uh, Harry Reams' head is between her legs and she takes a puff of the cigarette and says, you don't mind if I smoke while you eat. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that's the way the film starts. And if, if you think about this, Texas was a pretty conservative place, David, at, the point, at that point. You know, you couldn't buy a mixed drink. Uh, the so Texas sodomy statute back before 75 made it a felony to place a sexual, a non-sexual part against a sexual part for the purpose of sexual gratification. And I used to jokingly say that made me and Mr. Happy habitual felon <laughs> before the age of 13. But it was an interesting time. You know, uh, there was war raging overseas. The, there were riots in the streets, much like we see today, civil rights civil liberties, free speech, free love were blossoming flower-like from their underground abode. It was a fun time to be a lawyer. Uh, I can, I, I know you've got a lot of friends that are approaching my age, but you know, I'm, I'm 77. Uh, and uh, this was a great way to cut your teeth uh, as a lawyer. Well, one of the things I love is that, you know, you haven't slowed down one bit. You're, you're going as strong now as as when I first met you a long time ago, and I, I love it. One of the, um, Jerry, one of the interesting things I read about the arrest, because they kept arresting him night after night, is that the lines for the movie kept getting longer and longer every time they arrested the poor guy. It was the best uh, advertising uh, the <laughs> film could have ever gotten. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, speaking of the film, uh, you know, if, uh, during, the, during the film, uh, I, the judge, turned his back to the film. And, and uh, uh, I finally objected. I said, Judge, how can you rule on, on my objections if you're not looking at the film? And the judge's uh, reaction was, Goldstein, I don't want to look at your dirty movie. This is in front of the jury. So, Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Um, so, well, I, I'm going I'm to get to that in a second. Before yeah. I get to, to, to the trial part, when they, when they first arrest your guy, Dexter, um, I read that they they did like the probable cause hearing in the theater itself. I had never heard of such a thing. What happened with that? They they actually uh, watched the movie and made a, a an initial obscenity finding. It was because at the time uh, obscenity had become a big issue, uh, and we'll get to how big it was. But uh, one of the interesting things was that you you couldn't have a prior restraint. So what they would do is they would make a probable cause finding so that they could seize the film, seize the projector, put him in jail, make him make a big bond uh, and make a big deal about it. Hmm. And the DA, uh, a guy named Ted Butler, 
who's no longer with us, who became a judge. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But he was running for reelection. And what he was really wanting to do is to make a big deal out of it in a commercial vicinity, even back in 73, was as a class B misdemeanor. It wasn't a big deal. So he decided to charge it as a felony. And what he said was that there was a Texas statute, Article 1601. And he said that the use of the 16 millimeter projector was the use of a criminal instrument, which bumped it up from a class C misdemeanor to a second degree felony carrying up to 20 years in prison. And uh, uh, it was an ordinary 16 millimeter projector. Right. And so uh, we, we go to federal court. Uh, and in those days, you got a three judge panel uh, uh, to hear when you challenged a, a statute. And it turned out that, uh, by the way, it was, it, it was fun. Um, there was a great uh, elderly judge, Judge Singleton, out of the Southern District, you know, multi-district, three judge panels. Right. And I still remember we're arguing before him and the young prosecutor, uh, who also became a judge, is arguing the case. And Singleton looks at him and says, you know, under your theory, if I wrote a dirty word with this pencil, uh, I guess I'd, I'd be using a criminal instrument. You could charge me with a felony. And he thought for many, yeah, I, yeah. And, and Singleton threw the pencil at him. Shocks, it almost hit me right between the eyes. Uh, anyway, we, we ended up before the three-judge panel twice because they finally consolidated us, consolidated us with a bunch of other cases. And then we went to the Fifth Circuit, and then we actually were heard by the Fifth Circuit en banc twice. Amazing. Uh, and uh, they they enjoin the the prosecutions, which, as you know, with the uh, Anti Injunction Act and you know of seventeen whatever it is, and uh, the Younger Abstention Doctrine, it's hard to get a federal court to enjoin. But our argument was, look, they they're not trying to, they're not they're never going to prosecute this guy. No, nobody would ever buy that argument. They're just harassing him. And they're repeatedly arresting him every night, making him make big bail and it's and seizing the film. And they're just trying to stop them from showing it before there's any any trial. And and so eventually, though, it, it does go forward. I'm going to get to those appeals in a second. But, you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was you know, they treated this as one of the biggest cases in Texas. They they started searching the the uh, theater. They were you know on their hands and knees walking through the theater. San Antonio police had cotton swabs, and they were on their hands and knees on the seats and on the floor trying to find semen. And we actually put on an expert who said, you know, it's it's dark theaters that cause people to jerk off in the movie. You know, it has nothing to do with what they're watching for the most part. They could do it to Bambi. Uh, but you know, it it we did they did put us to trial, but it was the federal courts had stopped the federal the the felony prosecutions. So they put us to trial ultimately after we go to the Supreme Court the second time on the misdemeanor offense. Actually, okay, so, uh, in between the two times. So so you're going to trial on the misdemeanor. The case is getting tons and tons of press, um, and I think you mentioned you you start hiring different experts. I, I read that some of the experts were, were uh, psychologists to say that the movie was harmless, educational. I mean, how do you, how do you find these experts, Goldstein? By the way, they, they were psychiatrists. Uh, well, by the way, you know, look, 
at the time, it was uh, sort of like, you know, what we're fighting right now over systemic racism. The idea was, you're going to teach my kids sex in high school? I don't think so. And there was a big stink about that. So uh, the, the book that every high school used for sex education, there was a psychiatrist that wrote it. We called it. Uh, I won't get into the specifics of what the judge asked him in chambers, uh, but he was a pretty good expert. I, I will say that he was the only one of our four psychiatrists uh, who te they actually testified that they were not only harmless, but these kind of movies actually uh, serviced uh, couples that were having difficulties, that it actually was uh, something that made their their marriages uh, better. But uh, it, it, I, it's why I've always wondered about marriage counselors. Quite frankly, most of these psychiatrists had divorced their <laughs> spouses by the time we even got to the, uh, to the, to the case. Uh, but by the way, then the courthouse, the courtroom was packed. It was a fairly large county courtroom. Older, right. But, and it was the DA's office would have passes so they could get into the courthouse before it opened. Well, you couldn't find a seat to save your life. And it was there every day uh, for every minute of it. Uh, so and, so uh, I want to I want to ask you about that as as you're getting ready for the trial. Um, and you're trying to figure out what jurors you want to pick to to judge this movie and this misdemeanor. How are you thinking about Voidir? What advice did you get about picking the jury? My my mentor and patron, saying a wonderful San Antonio lawyer, Ma Maury Maverick. I've got to tell you about him. He's he's worth the story. Please. Uh, his great great grandfather was Samuel Maverick, who in Paul Revere's etching of the Boston Massacre, uh, it's Samuel Maverick who's holding. Christmas addict uh, in his arms, and they both lay in state in Fennial Hall after being executed. His son was, uh, sorry, grandson was Sam Maverick uh, at the Alamo. He was a lawyer. And when William Barrett Travis had to send somebody to warn Sam Houston at San Jacinto that the Alamo was under siege, he sent uh, Sam Maverick because being a lawyer, he knew he could read and write. And in Willie Morris's book, Northward's Home, uh, he quotes Maury Jr. saying, that's the only time I'm certain education ever did anybody in my family any good. Huh. Uh, anyway, uh, Maury sat me down and he started talking to me about jury selection. And, uh, you know, as you know, and lawyers that try cases understand, you don't really select a jury. You, you, you discard jurors you don't like. You strike jurors. Right. So, you know, when the judge says, is this your jury? I've never looked at it and thought, well, who the shit is that over at the end? You know, it's the ones that don't say anything that end up on your jury. The ones that don't offend either side. Well, what he told me was, he said, go look at the nicest little old lady with blue hair or, you know, and 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 question her and say, ma'am, Miss McGillicuddy, if, if you saw some uh, some woman with semen dribbling out of the side of her mouth. Could you ever find that to be a socially redeeming film? Oh my God. And he said, you know, you know what her answer is going to be. You're not looking for her. You're looking for some guy sitting behind her to the side of her with a smile on his face. 
That's the guy you don't want to ask any questions on and hope he gets on your jury. What, so, what advice is that? That's amazing. Uh, it was probably the best jury advice I've ever gotten. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. I'd say so. Um, okay, so you, you get your jury with uh, the guys who were smirking in the back. Yeah. Um, I, I read the prosecutor um, gave this opening line for his opening that the movie was morbid and shameful, patently offensive and without redeeming social value. Um how do you combat that, uh, Goldstein, in your, in your opening? What's your opening like? Well, my opening was fairly uh, innocuous. It was talking about the need to have an open mind, uh, something that in 1973, Central Texas uh, uh, was not really uh, very appealing. But it wasn't that. I spent most of my time in the opening objecting to the prosecutor because he wasn't just going ranting and raving about the terrible film. Uh, he continually, I mean, he pounded on the fact that this theater is owned by the Dixie Mafia. This is mob, the, the mob runs this theater. And uh, uh, he kept that up continually uh, during, the, uh, during, the, during the trial. I finally got the judge to order him not to do it anymore. And, and I'll put a little asterisk there. We're going to come back to what happens with the mob yeah. part of the case. But um, you object the judge issues that order. But then the next interesting thing that happens in the trial that I saw is that there's a big debate about whether the movie would even be played. Um, and, and the judge lets you play it, of course. But as you said before, doesn't doesn't watch it, keeps turning around. Um, and, and what I read was that the movie kept stopping in the middle of it. You can't play all the way through. What happens with that? Well, what, what happened is they had put string into the little holes in the, by the way, it's a 60, it's not even a 35 millimeter film, right. you know, in the, in the, in the, in the actual film in the canister and it would cut it and it would throw it off the, the uh, projector. And uh, uh, my objection was that, that the jury wasn't seeing the film as it was intended probably a break on our part, but uh, the, the idea was that they should see it in the sense that it was meant to be shown and that that prevented that because it would take them, uh, one day it took a, about a, almost half a day for them to put their film back together, even though they had seized some, you know, six copies of it. They should uh, have asked Dexter to help out, uh, get it to play. He was a professional at that. <laughs> and by the way, the, the funny thing about Dexter is, uh, you know, where do you think he is now? He's a jury consultant in Dallas. Oh, that's awesome. You know? Can you <laughs> believe that? Yeah. That, I mean, and he looks very respectable. I love it. I he's love it. That, he's not that kid that we, we remember with the long hair. I made him wear a wig so the hair didn't go down. It was tushy. Tell, tell me about that. In front of the jury, he wore a wig? Yes. It was, it, it was not a very good wig either. Uh, <laughs> it was fairly, you know, would kind of, it would, it was kind of like a helmet. It would, wobble around if he got excited. You, you know, um, you couldn't get him to cut his hair, I guess. He just said he had to go with the wig. Uh, you know, that was 1973. I, I didn't want to impose, you know, <laughs> right. a dress code on anybody. You know, you know, Goldstein, I used to follow my dad around who was the lawyer. And um, I saw him with a criminal case once and and he was appointed and the kid walked in and had shaved eyebrows. It was the time where, where uh, those kids were shaved. And my dad said, before the next time we go to court, you must grow your eyebrows in. 
And I was sitting there as a kid watching uh, my dad yell at his client uh, to grow his eyebrows in. And uh, it reminds me of you having this guy wear the wig in front of the jury. Yeah, yeah. It was a pretty stupid idea. Well, by the way, it was, it, you couldn't come into court with long hair. So that, that, was, the, that was the obvious answer. So uh, you, you get the felonies kicked. The misdemeanor goes to trial. The judge is giving you this hard time. Uh, the guy, Dexter, gets convicted of the misdemeanor. But then, of course, you take it up. And one of the main issues on appeal, of course, is what you just talked about, this organized crime issue. Tell me what happens uh, well, on appeal. It, the, the, the case took a couple of weeks, I think, to try. And, uh, and, you know, can you imagine that? I mean, we, I mean, the battle of the experts, you know, and they had predominantly uh, Baptist preachers, you know, who condemned the film naturally. Uh, and so it even had religious overtones. But he kept going back to the mob and the mafia. And uh, he had a big filing cabinet, one of those ones on rollers. Yeah, he would roll in every day. And as you know, uh, I've never understood this. There's nothing in the rules that says the prosecution gets to have the table and right in front of the jury. But I don't care if federal or state court, they always get that table. It's like it's a designated thing for them to be able to hold up papers and look at them so the jury can look over their shoulder and see the conviction list or whatever they're looking at. Anyway, but he bring in this big thing. And I, I noticed for days, the jurors kept on craning their necks looking at it. And finally, I got up and because he, he would bring it in before everybody got there and he would take it out. And they were right up again, almost there was barely room for it in front of the jury uh, box, but just enough that they could see it. And there was a big sign on it in big red letters. And it said organized crime. This is the prosecutor's cart yeah. right in front it, of the jury. The cart. And uh, we we. Uh, we get, we end up, uh, you know, I, I, I had a conniption fit. I, you know, I'm jumping up and down and I go over there, I rip it off the thing and I make it an exhibit and I offer it into evidence and I, I make a bill, you know, the bill of uh, the, the, the bill and uh, uh, I offer it and the judge accepts it and it goes into evidence. And the, uh, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which is our highest, at the, still our highest criminal court, uh, it it handles as the Supreme Court handles civil cases in Texas. The Court of Criminal Appeals handles uh, uh, criminal cases. Said the unanimous opinion, which I love, I I still love it. Says uh, uh, an accused is entitled to at least one tolerably fair trial. <laughs> and uh, obviously, uh, uh, the prosecutor in my case had violated the one tolerably fair trial rule. What a great line, even from your Texas uh, Criminal Court yeah, of Appeals, it, which, I, which I understand is, is not the greatest court for criminal defendants, Goldstein. Well, that, that's the one that, that affirmed a death penalty uh, when the lawyer had slept through the trial. And they said, well, maybe that was his trial strategy. <laughs> that's great. That's, that's good. So you're entitled to at least one tolerably, tolerably fair trial. Fair trial. Tolerably. Um, yeah. You know, you mentioned this. Uh, I got to go back to it, that the prosecutors always get this table closest to the jury so, so that people listening know. So there's two tables, of course, facing the judge and and typically in courtrooms, the prosecutor's table is the one closest to the jury and the defense is the one furthest away. And it always drives me crazy. When I was a public defender, I said, you know what, I'm going to beat the prosecutor into court and just sit at that table and see what happens. 
And, and they were freaking out and they asked the judge to have me moved and the judge ordered me to move to the other table. And I, okay. I said, just what you said, like, what rule is that? Yeah. And by the way, uh, you probably, you, I think, you know, a Houston lawyer, wonderful lawyer named Ed Millette. Yeah. And we used to try cases out in uh, Judge Wood and the federal judge who was unfortunately assassinated, but uh, out in Del Rio. And there was a little prosecutor who, by the way, uh, was put in the witness protection program because they, there was an attempted assassination of the prosecutor as well. Not anything we had anything to do with. But the prosecutor was was small like Edward, and he had kind of a squeaky voice like Edward. And the, and the court reporter, who used to use uh, uh, fountain pens instead of a stenographer, and he was pretty good, by the way, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but shorthand. And uh, he used to ask me uh, to give him a signal as to which one of them, because he couldn't distinguish their voices, they were but two squeaky voices. But anyway, one time Edward goes to court early and sets all of us up at the prosecution's table. And uh, um, the prosecutor comes in and says, Your Honor, Mr. Mollett's over there. Look at him. He's, he's got my, my seated at the prosecution's table, the U.S. attorney's table. And, you know, we said, well, Your Honor, there's no rule. And then he said, now, now, gentlemen, you know, Millette had anticipated all this. And he said, please, you know, let's let's not have this uh, trial start this way. Let's have collegiality. And so Millette and I get up and we move the other table. And Millette had gone and unscrewed the balance thing on the back of those chairs that they go back and forth. And the guy sits down at it. It flips him over backwards. <laughs> And the two of them chased each other around the courtroom. It was, it was, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. I love so, it. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Uh, if you and I did that today, we'd be in shackles. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You, you know, those were better times, I think, to try cases. Um, well, yeah. So you you win on appeal. You get this tolerably fair trial. You had previously won on the felony, and there's a third case that ends up going all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, well, it for, went for it the first time. Uh, uh, where the the city of San Antonio and the state appealed the three judge fifth on bond fifth circuit. And then think about this. By the time all this happens, it's 1976. And if you remember, uh, this was a 1983 action that we had brought uh, or skirting around younger uh, and uh, and obtain a, um, a a judgment. And during the time that was all happening, the Civil Rights Attorneys Fees Awards Act of 1976 gets passed. And so we then filed for attorney's fees and the state takes that up to the Supreme Court. So the second case that we get is the Supreme Court saying, no, they're in, they're entitled to it. And they even, you know, you probably know this, they, the standard was in those days was fairly decent. You, you, they looked at it as, as though it was a sophisticated uh, um, uh, federal case. And, you know, they use the same um, uh, indexes that they use in a SEC uh, uh, case. And uh, we, we've set up a free speech uh, 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 section for the, yeah. for the civil, the ACLU and donated the fee to them, which really pissed the state off. <laughs> How much was the fee? Uh, it was a whopping 20 grand, but you know, that was all right. You know, that's pretty good. That's pretty back good. In 1976, you know, that when I went to work, when Chris and I got married 53 years ago, next week, I was making 10 grand and her tuition was four grand. We, 
And by the way, I had just as much fun, perhaps even more than as I do now, but I'm still enjoying being a trial lawyer. I still enjoy going to court, still enjoy the fun. Well, Goldstein, you know, with that 20 grand, you could have gotten a new uh, a bus to drive to the Supreme Court. Tell, tell me about this story. So you, you're, you get to argue, uh, you know, Dexter's case in the Supreme it's, Court. When it was 1969, and it was what I was telling you, and we had, we had this VW bus, we had taken all the seats out, put a Persian carpet down with pillows all over, a big PC symbol on the back of it, Ramsey Clark for president on the bumper sticker. <laughs> Love it. And we got run out of more South Texas counties than you can imagine. But uh, uh, it's, it's, it's fun that in France, they were that interested in this, in this series of trials that went through the federal appellate courts all the way to the Supreme Court twice. So great. You know, Goldstein, you, you have been a, a big advocate for criminal defense lawyers, for the right to trial. Um, you've done a lot of work um, for First Amendment, for marijuana. I mean, how do you have time to do all of this stuff uh, and keep going? It's what you enjoy. It's for the same reason you go to trial. I think, and by the way, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fading art, David. I, I, uh, I worry. Uh, you know, when you look at the federal court system, uh, it does. Uh, if you don't think America can build an efficient railroad, you've never seen the criminal justice system in action. <laughs> 90, 97 to 98% of our cases are disposed of uh, by pleas. And the trial penalty is a big one. Uh, and that really started getting worse once we started getting minimum mandatory sentences and the sentencing guidelines. They, they coerced people. It, it, it wasn't worth risking the minimum mandatory. And uh, the sentencing guidelines uh, created this, you know, the idea that judges had discretion to individualize sentencing was it made that a really important part of everybody's uh, uh, everybody's practice. It, uh, I think, that you, it's too easy. Most of the judges now have, have never had that discretion. It's yeah. too easy to say, "Look, I'd like to help you, but my hands are tied. I've got to give you, you know, whatever it is." Uh, so, go ahead. it's it's no, it's 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 terrible, um, and. You know, that's why I'm doing this podcast to talk to great trial lawyers like you to, to try to inspire some folks to do more trials, um, because that's why we became lawyers. I mean, that's to me why we're doing it. Absolutely. And there's a little twinkle in our eye. You've got to be a little bit of a theatrical person and a little bit of an anarchist. Uh, not much, but there is something fun about dealing with uh, holding the government to its duties and obligations. And uh, that's why I worry when lawyers say, well, I wouldn't represent somebody. You know, I'm represent mainly these days white collar crimes because that's where the money is. But to be honest with you, we represent, you know, murderers and child molesters. And, and I don't think it's the lawyer's duty to circumvent the criminal justice system to say, I'm not going to represent you because I think you're guilty. I'm not going to represent you because I don't like the facts of this case. When we do that, we short circuit the system. We default uh, to the lowest common denominator. We have an obligation, I think, as trial lawyers 
uh, to put our clients' best foot forward. Uh, it's not that long ago that the Supreme Court reminded us uh, that uh, even guilty people have the right to effective assistance of counsel. I think that was Kyle or one of those cases. It, it is, it's important that um, uh, we understand that, that our job is not our job is not to decide the ultimate issues. It's to it's for two lawyers on either side to advocate for their clients and put their to to use the rules of evidence and exclude that which is not admissible to introduce that uh, that is. And if you got two good lawyers on each side, you're going to get a fairly just result. Amen. And so, you know, that's why this case was so important. I think because it showed that. Even a uh, small-time projectionist in Texas could ultimately prevail and get fees. And and he told us, you know, that Dexter ends up becoming a jury consultant. What ends up happening to uh, your prosecutor and your judge in that case? Well, I'm not telling any stories outside. the The prosecutor became a judge, and uh, he was found dead of a heart attack. Uh, in a motel room uh, with his secretary, mm. uh, the 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 lead prosecutor, the one that insisted on Chad Butler, the one that that uh, uh, came up with this, concocted this idea that a projector could be a criminal instrument. Uh, he became a state judge. Uh, interestingly enough. Uh, there's an article in Nation magazine uh, where after the Fifth Circuit had chastised him in their en banc decision, uh, they, uh, uh, the Carter administration withdrew their nomination for him to be a federal judge, uh, uh, or he resigned, uh, withdrew that nomination uh, when that happened. Interesting, and by the way, I was excused uh, from having to practice before him. People used to hire me just so they wouldn't have to go before him, I think, at least. <laughs> That's I, a great, I, great, great way to market. Exactly. Uh, hire me, you don't have to go before this judge. You can get him recused. Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, after Dexter got arrested the third time, you couldn't get into the theater. Uh, it it was so packed. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, Judge Butler, who was actually a nice guy in many respects, he ended up in a assisted living uh, uh, for dementia patients with my parent, with my mother, hmm. uh, and was in the uh, uh, room next door. Uh, and I, I always worried um, that he might remember me uh, <laughs> when I would walk by. <laughs> That's funny. So I have to ask you, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, one of your clients, a totally different case, but, but uh, one that everybody always associates with you and asks you about, Hunter Thompson. I need a good Hunter Thompson story before we before we finish this Goldstein. Uh, he was harder on his friends and his lawyers than he was on his enemies. I can tell you that. Uh, I still remember after we won the uh, uh, the first case uh, and the DA moved to dismiss the charges. The front page of the paper read uh, uh, that was an act of cowardice. And I've instructed my lawyers to appeal immediately to the Colorado Supreme Court. Hmm. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, 
he was always fun. I I would go out to Al Farm and it would be one night it'd be George Plimpton and you get to talk about sports and the next night it'd be a nude female motorcycle gang from Louisiana. <laughs> it was always a surprise. Uh, and uh, uh, he was a good friend and a, a difficult client as they yeah. met tomorrow. So, sometimes the best of friends make the, the most difficult of clients. I think so. I, I think so. Um, but you're a delight, David. So Goldstein, before we finish, any any advice to young lawyers about getting started in criminal defense, trying cases? What, 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 what's your advice to them? I think it gives you the opportunity to understand and realize that our founding fathers really did understand something about this. Our system is flawed. I'm the first guy that will bitch about the justice department and uh, the judiciary, but I'm part of that system. And it works better than any other I've ever seen. And we don't use it enough. Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's going to dry up if we don't. I think it's important for every young lawyer to think about the idea of standing up, standing up, standing up in courtrooms and barrooms and classrooms and standing up against injustice whenever and wherever it rears its ugly head. It's a, it's a privilege. Uh, to go into courtrooms and do that. I'm still enjoying it at 77. And I encourage all of my brothers and sisters when they come into this fold, uh, come join David and I. We'll, we'll have some fun. Amen. I love it. Amen is right. How cool is Jerry Goldstein, the man to see in San Antonio? And really just a wonderful trial and appellate lawyer throughout the country. It was fun to talk to him. He's just an energetic, uh, enthusiastic, always positive guy. And you can't help but uh, get excited and energetic when you hear from him and when you talk to him. And that's what's great about Goldstein. Love working with the guy. Love speaking to him about uh, the deep throat case back in the 70s. And he's always around at all the different conferences. And uh, he's one of the guys that everybody gravitates to because he's so much fun, uh, lovable, and smart as a great lawyer. Anyway, uh, thanks to Goldstein for doing that episode. We'll be back in two weeks talking with Jeffrey Figer about the Jack Kevorkian trial. Fascinating euthanasia trial that you all remember. Talk to you in two weeks. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and this is For the Defense. <laughs>